Once again, it's great to see all of the, the faces um, here with us today. Um, yeah, we can't say it enough. It's just so good that in light of everything going on with life, that we can just, even for a moment, be reminded of the goodness of our God. That we can say to God in the highest of praises, hallelujah, be glory and majesty and dominion and power to the God we serve. Isn't that such an encouragement and a relief to us that we can take our eyes off of our situations and place them rightly on the God that's control of it all. And so, and so today, we're going to continue just to dive into God's word. And it's so easy that for us to come here and to sit here and want to go through the motions, but um, before we begin, let's just go one more time to God in prayer and just ask that he would be with us. Let's ask that he would be with us. Father, there's nothing in this world that we need more than we need you. And that doesn't always seem real to us. Sometimes that can We can know that in our minds, but our hearts don't echo the same desire. And so I pray that today, Father, would you make that a reality for us? Father, would this be a time where we continue to worship you, Father? That as your word goes forth, I pray that it would make Jesus high and lifted up and would make everything else pale in comparison. Father, we need you to be with us. We need you to speak to us. We need you to to come near and draw near to us in a real way so that we know that you haven't forgotten about us. That regardless of how what things look like on the outside, Father, would you build within us this confidence that we can trust you, that we can trust you as not only one who saves, but one who leads and is with us on the journey. Father, I pray that your spirit ultimately would be put on display. We don't need the demonstration of an articulate speaker. We don't need the demonstration of catchy lines or pithy statements, Father. No, what we need to be demonstrated is the power of God working through his spirit and through his word. And so, God, would you do that for us? Father, would you remove me out of the picture? Father, I'm simply a vehicle, a vessel. And, Father, I pray that at the end of the day, Jesus Christ would increase and that I would decrease. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple weeks, um, last week we started a two-part series in the book of Jude, um, where I really um, titled this particular series called Family Matters. You see, for many of us in this room, family is a thing that either can trigger one response of happiness and joy, memories of good times with family or with brothers and sisters and moms and dad, vacations that we spent together. But for others, family can bring about a sense of nightmares. It can bring about memories of pain and resentment and disappointment. And so I started off last week with the tagline of of, of my former pastor who used to say, the church is not like a family, it is a family. And so if that's true, all of us can amen that, but we know that to actually flesh that out is a whole different story. To actually live our lives in light of those who are in Christ really being family members. And God's expectation for us being that we should interact and love one another in light of that truth. That's a lot, that's more easier said than done. And so three things that we drew out of the first seven verses of the text were that one, what does that mean to really belong 
and be a part of God's family. The first one being that to be a part of God's family means that we belong to him. It means knowing who daddy is. It means understanding the full length and the breadth by which God has gone in order to make us his. The second thing being, it means that we all have a responsibility. God doesn't bring us into the family so that we can sit on the couch and lay back. No, he's given us an assignment. And that assignment is to contend for the faith that was handed down for us. And that just doesn't fall on the hands or the heads of a few. That's a collective responsibility that we all have. And the third thing was that to be a part of God's family means to know who's the boss. It means to know that God is in control and he reigns and controls everything. And so that we look to him as our leader. And today we'll dive into Jude, the remaining verses 8 through 25. And we're going to stay in line with this idea of what it means to be a part of God's family. Three things we're going to draw from the text is the first one being that to be a part of God's family means to know that God is trustworthy. It means that we can trust him. What good would it be to be a part of a family and not be able to trust the God who established the family in the first place? The second one being that to be a part of God's family means persevering to the end. Every family has its fair share of problems and the church is no different. We got to learn how to press through the family drama that comes our way and endure until the end. The third thing is that to be a part of God's family means believing that God is able. Believing that he's able. So let's start with our first point. Let's move right in. We don't have much time. Jude chapter 1. And again, there's only one chapter. Verse 8, and it says, Yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Let's stop there. My wife and I uh, lived in Denton, Texas for a little under a year, and probably most of you in the room have no idea where Denton, Texas is. It's a little small town outside of Dallas, and so we lived there, and um, really this was an adventurous season for us. We had just gotten married. We had had our first son who was about two years old, and we had just had our second son that was approaching about four months old. And I remember one day coming home for work, coming home for work, and my wife had, was still working on dinner, and she had, the kids had still, were still up. And so I remember sitting on the couch, and we had some good friends over. And while we sat on the couch, I was holding one child in one hand. And then my oldest son wanted to, he always liked to play these games where he would climb on top of the couch and try to 
uh, try to strangle me or wrestle me um, by my neck. And so this time, though, because I had the baby in one arm, I would tell him, son, no, you can't do that. I've got Jaden in my arms. You can't, we can't play right now. But like most two-year-olds, for some reason, they had this keen insight that, okay, daddy's busy holding Jaden. Mommy's in the kitchen doing something. So I guess that means I can do whatever I want. There's no one around to give me a tap-tap, so I'm going to keep doing it, though daddy told me not to. And yes, tap-tap is a word that parents use in describing spankings. It's baby language. Stay with me. (laughs) And so I remember he kept doing this. And so there was, on the third attempt, there was this moment where this time my youngest son, he wanted to throw up on me. And so in the process of this one boy trying to grab my neck, I've got this baby throwing up on our brand new couch, and so I'm trying to navigate the two, and it caused a knee-jerk reaction. And so as my body shifted this way to try to catch the throw-up about to hit my couch, this little baby decided to move into a whole other trajectory, headed straight to the floor. And so I'm paying full attention to one kid while the other one I eventually see out of the side of my eyes, ricocheting off of the couch and headed straight to the floor. And so as a dad, I didn't, I had to pick and choose. (laughs) Who was I going to spare? Who was I going to save? But this is when I learned the strength of daddy reflexes. Daddy reflexes kicked in and it wasn't a mental exercise, but it was a response. And so with one hand, I juggled this baby and then out of nowhere, I grabbed the other baby out of the air and brought him back to safety. (laughs) And so in doing that, my friends that at the time didn't have kids, they just watched and it was like slow motion. And the only thing that he could say was, yo, Rich, you're a G. I ain't never seen nothing like that before. You see, there's something about when a parent sees their child in struggle that it demands a response. It demands a reaction. We don't want to see our kids in danger and just let them fall flat on their face. No, we want to rescue them. And so the thing that we have to understand about God is that God will not abandon his children. That the thing that we're going to see in this text, though it gives a full description of the dangers that are present and real in the church, God's going to comfort us in letting us know that, no, he's not that type of deadbeat dad. No, he's a good father, and he's going to do everything he can to protect his people. He's going to do everything he can to protect his children because he loves us. Don't we have these same type of questions for God when things seem to be going wrong in our lives, that I could only assume that my two-year-old son, as he's flying off of the couch, though he could recall that daddy is present and he comes home every night from work, though he can recall that daddy plays with me and he loves me and he gives me kisses and he pays me attention, though he could recall all of those things as he was bouncing off of the couch to the floor, well, I could only assume that thoughts probably went through his mind of, where's daddy at now? Daddy, I know you were with me back then, but where are you now? I need you. And so we treat Jesus in the same way. Things get difficult. In a church like this, as we're growing and as we're seeing new people come into the family, there's also this real sense of 
the heartache of being a church is that the church isn't always neat and nice and clean. That the church can be messy at times. And people that we grew to love and that we grew to walk with and that we share life with can, and, and at certain moments begin to totally walk in the opposite direction. That they can drift away. That one of the hardest things for us as Christians see a family member turn their back on the God who did so much for them. That's hard. God doesn't take pleasure in that, and we don't take pleasure in that. So what Jew before, as we break down this section of text, what I want us to do is to say, let's not get caught up in all of the details. There's going to be a lot of things that are mentioned here, Old Testament references, things that we can look at and we can leave confused. In an effort not to simply focus on the trees, let's look at the big picture. Let's look at the force that God is presenting for us. And that force is that he is trustworthy. One of the ways that we can tell someone is trustworthy is by seeing. Or one of the ways someone can prove to us that he's trustworthy is by giving us a head up, heads up when danger is lurking that way. The easiest way for you to become friends with somebody is that if you're playing basketball and a ball is headed straight for the head to just be like, hey, bro, duck. Heads up. You've made a friend in an instant. Why? Because you saved him from danger. So this is what God is going to do for us. He says, yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. We've got to look back to what Jude had said before is that those had crept, those, that people had crept into the church unnoticed. Well, what went unnoticed to those that were in the church didn't go unnoticed to the God above the church. And so what God is going to first do is going to say, look, there's danger in your midst. He's going to give us the heads up. But not only is he going to give us the heads up, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a detailed description of the suspects. And so he tells us things like, They use dreams to justify their behavior. This is similar to people who make everything spiritual. Their dreams are spiritual. God gave me this dream. And in this dream, guess what? If you really unpack it and and as the dream unfolds, we'll see that the dreams were merely just a justification for you to do whatever you wanted to do. This is similar to those who will come to a pastor and ask us for counsel. And in giving them counsel clearly about what God's word says, they'll say things like, well, I'm going to pray about it. What do you need to pray for? God has clearly spoken. No, God's not calling you to pray. He's calling you to obey. And so these people rely on natural things as a simply to justify their own behavior. There's not only that, but there's this spiritual arrogance that they have. I remember growing up, and the first time I listened to Christian hip-hop, there's this group that they always talked about shooting demons and stuff. I'm going to use God's word, and we're going to kill all these demons. Things like that. There's this, yeah, it's weird. There's this, there's this spiritual arrogance that they have to think that they have a power that, that, that really never belonged to them in the first place. It goes so far to say Michael, an archangel, didn't even rebuke Satan as he's defeating them, but he no, he calls upon God and says, no, that rightfully belongs to God. The Lord rebuke you. These people, they're more bold than Michael the archangel. 
It says they reject God's authority ultimately by making themselves their authority. Our culture constantly promotes this do whatever you feel is right in your own eyes. Do you. If it feels right, go ahead and do it. We're ruled by our pleasure and the feelings and our senses. Whatever looks good and feels good and smells good and, and whatever appeases us. He continues on by saying, these people have made a religion of their own. We have to be careful that for those that profess to be, to profess to be Christians, when we view God's word and approach God's word and our faith through the lens of like a buffet, whereas we pass down the line, we can pick and choose whatever we think is good for us. Let it be known, let it be assured to everyone in this room that the moment you've changed one thing or have not agreed with one thing about Christianity is the moment that it's no longer Christianity. You are following yourself. You are following a God that you've created for you, not the God of the Bible. And so Jude says, family, stranger, danger. Another kid's turn, baby talk. Come on, parents. Y'all know what I'm saying. Stranger danger. There's people in the mist. There's people there to harm you. So God has given us a detailed description of the suspects, but look at our God, that even in him giving a detailed description of the suspects, he goes on to say, woe to them. Woe to them. If we're not careful, we'll think that woe to them is God's harsh and condemning judgment. And part, that's partly true. But woe to them was a term used in the Old Testament to not only point to the coming judgment, but it also was an act of mercy. It was something that God had called the prophets of old, those who spoke on behalf of, G, of, of God, to go forth and to warn, warn of some dangers coming their way. But it also was an opportunity to repent. It was an opportunity for them to turn away from what they were doing. It was likened to, um, it says it's a, it can be communicated or um, understood as that being a sound. The sound of an eagle or a falcon that's in distress. Many of us heard that very same sound last week as we saw the falcons in distress. Is it too early? Too early for falcon? It's too early. Sorry. I'm a Patriots fan. I'm sorry. Um, so let's, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Um, and so God says, woe to them. A God who would show mercy even to his enemies. Let me say that again. Our God would show mercy and provide opportunity for even his enemies to return back to him. But not only that, Jude wants to highlight not just the fact that God warns us of danger, not this the fact that um, giving us a description of what, what we should look for, who are these people in our present, but thirdly, our God honors his word. He honors his word in verses 14 through 16. He wants us to remember, he wants us to recall. It says it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, 
Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. I want to highlight that. Behold, the Lord comes. Jude up until this point had only discussed the past action of God as it relates to sin and his judgment. He pointed them back to Old Testament accounts of both how God had to deal with the sin, not only of his own chosen people, the children of Israel, and that he rescued some outside of uh, uh, some from slavery, those who um, who believed, but he also condemned those who didn't. He didn't he didn't he he went so far as to point us towards the reality of God also dealt with the angels, those that were created for worship to him. He created them. uh, He. Um, he didn't withhold his judgment on them when they got out of line and got out of pocket. And then thirdly, he even went so far as to say, no, but even entire nations and towns, when they rebelled against God that he had to deal with their sin. But now Jude is now not pointing us back, but he's pointing us forward to the future hope that we have in Jesus, that regardless of how circumstances appear, behold, the Lord God is coming. He is returning. How often do we think about that? How often does that shape how we live our day-to-day lives that behold, one day God will come and justice will be had, not in this present moment only, but in the life to come, in the future coming, Jesus will return. Behold, the Lord comes It can seem for those that were a part of this church that, God, I feel the pressures of what you had described in John 17 where Jesus prays to God. And he says, my desire is not to remove them from the world, but to keep them in it. But in his keeping them in the world, he says he will protect us from the evil one. Well, if you're in a situation where even in church it appears that evil is all around, our only hope can't just lie in what is seen with our eyes, but it has to point further out to see that God is coming. God is coming, and he will do what he said he is going to do. God keeps his word. I don't know about you, but I would believe in a person like this who not only keeps his word, but protects us from danger. And doesn't just protect us with this ambiguous um, ambiguous understanding, but a God who would get ingrained in the details to alert us of those who would seek to harm us. But not only that, in verses 17 through 23, there's something that Jude wants to remind us of. And so he says in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This will bring out the second point that we must endure to the end. God had given us the charge as the church that we should contend for the faith that was once and for all given to the saints. But the reason why he had to even give us that charge and that command is because 
many of those who were in the church were so overwhelmed with the the false teachers who had come in and had begun to lead astray that instead of responding rightly with contending, they responded with laziness. They responded with defeat. And so Jude now brings us back to the emphasis of the entire book of the Bible. And he says, but you must remember, one, he accounts to the words of the apostle. The very first thing that we have to know is that if we're going to be in any way effective of being able to do what God's called us to do, then we've got to remind ourselves of what God says and not what we feel. We have to remind ourselves of what God has already said. And so he has said in the last time, these people will be with you. But not only that, he points us to how we're to interact. What are we to do in the meantime? I think that's where perseverance comes in. You know, last week we all witnessed a tragedy. We all witnessed probably one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. The Falcons were, among every appearance, they seemed to have the game in the bank. And I was at this particular party where everyone wanted to let me know that we had lost and the game wasn't over. And so the thing about it is, going into the third quarter, the Falcons were up by 20 points. But for a person who's a fan of the Patriots, I knew that my team is a second-half team. I knew who was leading the charge, and so therefore I could have all the confidence to know that Tom Brady wasn't going to go out like a punk. You know, there was something that had to have taken place in that locker room to where this team that was on the cusp of defeat had to remember and recall who they were as a team, who was on their side, who was leading them to the victory. And so stay with me. This is going to Jesus. I'm pointing to Jesus. And so inch by inch and stop by stop, ultimately, it led to the defeat of the Atlanta Falcons. Now, unlike football, we're not competing on an equal playing field. Unlike football, the outcome of the game isn't dependent upon our abilities or what we can bring to the table. No, the victory has already been done. For those that are believers in Jesus Christ, we know that when Jesus went on that cross, when Jesus was placed in that grave, when Jesus resurrected in glory, then that means that he secured the victory. And we could say money in the bank. Paul will go so far to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, we win. Right? In the end, we win. And so if we already know the outcome, then that means that when God is informing us of how we are to live our lives, that we can know that he's trying to take us to a destination. He's trying to point us to the day that we shall stand and we shall be presented with a crown, that we shall be with our God. And so when we look at the present day, Paul would go as far as to say that these are momentary, light afflictions. Nothing to could be compared to the glory that should be presented in the day of Christ Jesus. 
An old gospel song said it like this, though the battle may be hot and the conflict slow, though rugged the road as you travel along, hold on a little longer. Take Jesus at his word. He'll carry you through and through, right through to the promised land. The victory is won. However, the battle wages on. This is not a call for us to put our weapons down and just to act as though we can chill until we stand face to face with Jesus. This is a call for us to be aware that there will be pressures and there will be things and temptations that we will have to wrestle with for the rest of our life. But God supplies a strength for his people to endure until the very end. Church, I want to encourage you to keep on fighting. You know, there's this misconception about Christianity that what it means to be a Christian means to be perfect. That what it means to be a Christian is to no longer wrestle with real life situations. And part of that is because we've made this Bible so simple that people think that God is only concerned with telling you what to do. And he's not concerned about you entirely as a person. And this is a lie. We must keep on fighting because God has already told us that we don't fight and we don't labor in vain. What we wrestle with, what we fight against, is the prize that's already been handed out for us. We're just taking some time to get there. He continues on in breaking down why we should persevere, but now he goes into how we should persevere. Starting in verse, um, starting in verse twenty, he says, "But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus." God is going to tell us that we need to keep on fighting, and this is how we're going to do it. And so he's going to break it up into two particular categories. The first one being, how do we minister to one another? How do we live in light of being family with one another? And the key command here is that we should keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the only command that's given here. The rest of the three are simply participles that explain or expound upon what God has already said. Keep yourselves in the love of God, and this is how you do it. The first one being, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. To break that down and make it simpler, actively participate in the spiritual development and care of one another. It's not enough for you just to be mature. It's not enough for you just to be spiritual. God has collectively given all of us the responsibility to be concerned with our brothers and sisters. And so here he's saying, keep yourselves in the love of God. And the way that you do it is by actively participating in their care and their spiritual growth. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, we need to be continually built up, learning more, loving more, and living more the grand truths of the gospel. We must see to it that the foundation is right, for it will be useless or Um, It will be useless or worse than useless to be built up upon false principles. It is on our most holy faith that the building must be based. 
We should be so established in the doctrines of grace as to recognize their holiness and to imitate it in our own lives. Only a most holy faith is safe for the soul. And woe unto the man who rests content with any other. We spoke about this briefly last week, but to make bring this all together, we talked about the importance of knowing God's word well enough to where we can communicate that and edify one another with it. That your personal times with Jesus aren't simply meant for you, but your personal times for Jesus are deposits that God is using to feed your soul, but in order so you may go and feed someone else's. And so when he says that we need to actively participate in the spiritual growth, this is a call for us to know something. We can't simply be content or be complacent with just knowing enough to get by. God has revealed himself to you and I. He's given us his word. And so therefore, when we study God's word, we're not studying it to pass a test. We're studying it to know a person. And so he tells us what he wants us to understand is that if we really want to talk about right theology, if we really want to talk about what it means to know who God is, then that means understanding that when we study God's word, when we really have a rich grasp of the Bible and its principles, then good theology, it shows us the contours and the outskirts and the depths and the breaths of God's love. It reminds us of all that God has done for us and that all he's willing to give to us that leads up to one day where we'll be with him. It's going to help us to see all of the intricacy of who God is and what his love really looks like. The Bible is not about rules. The Bible is about showing humanity that there's a God who loves you, a God who wants to, who's willing to go to the farthest heights and the deepest lows in order to rescue you. And then not only that, when he does call you to be his own, it's about a God who is willing to love, care, and keep his people. And so when we read about him in scripture, this is so we can highlight and always keep in view the love of God the Father has for us. Actively participate in the spiritual development and care of one another. Who If I were to ask the question, who in your life cares for you this way? Who in your life asks you the tough questions? Who in your life is willing to stand in your way when you, everything in you wants to jump off the cliff? But not only that, who's in your life, who do you have that you're pouring into, that you're investing into? I understand that we can feel inadequate. We can feel as though we don't have anything to offer. But the thing that we have to offer our brothers and sisters is the work that Christ has already began and done in us. It doesn't mean that we have to spend 20 years before we can finally invest in someone because we've read all of the right books and we've memorized enough scripture. No, the moment to which God has made you his own, that if you have nothing more to offer than your testimony of what God has done, then that's enough. That invites you to now speak and encourage somebody who would now begin to doubt and will begin to um, think that God no longer loves them. But they can. But the way that we resist that, the way that we confront that is by recalling what God has done, not only in your life, but in our life. 
it's always an encouragement when we get to sit here and do something that from the outsiders looking in may seem like, what's the point of having Briar sit up here and tell us about his testimony? But for those that love Jesus, the recalling of God's work in our life and the new burdens and the new desires and the new ambitions that we have encourages us to build confirmation upon the reality that God is real and he's working in the life of his people. If you don't have people in your life like this, if you've never experienced what it's like to have a brother and sister relationship, what it looks like to be a part of this family. If you're a member of this church, I want to encourage you, get plugged into community groups. Get plugged in to be around, intentionally be around Christians who are like-minded that are looking for this same thing. And don't just wait for somebody else to do it for you. No, you in turn, be what you want, or be the very person that you want to experience for yourself for someone else. The second thing he goes on and he says that we should pray in the Holy Spirit. Our word that says, pray only looking for God, the Holy Spirit, to help us. If we're honest, we know those prayers that we just said half-heartedly, that we just recited because we know, God, I know I should pray, so let me just go ahead and do it. This is not that type of prayer. Paul's, uh, Jude's charge to us is that we will pray in the Holy Spirit. And I want to be mindful as well that Jude is not talking about praying in tongues. He's not talking about praying in a spiritual tongue. Jude is talking about praying in a way to where all dependence and all hope and all security and confidence comes from the help that God can give us through his spirit. That even if words don't proceed out of our mouth, we know that someone is in us intervening and speaking on our behalf to God. Pray in the Holy Spirit. You could think of it this way. If you want to see what a healthy church is, you want to know what a healthy church is, here's what it looks like. It looks like a praying church. It looks like a church that will not put confidence in their skills, their gifts, that will not put confidence in their services or their ability to plan a dope event. But no, it's a It's a church that will go before their knees and call upon God to do what we can't do on our own. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And lastly, he says, he moves on to, and we, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others. I'm sorry, let me back up. And lastly, he says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Simply this means live lives influenced by the truth that Jesus is coming back. When you wake up in the morning, do you think that today could be the day that Jesus cracks the sky and comes back for his people? How would Jesus find you if today in this moment he returned? The reason why he has to remind us of these things is simply because we forget We think that life somehow now becomes about me and myself and I, my ambitions, my pursuits. And so Jude has to remind us that, no, church, I've called you to contend. And what it looks like is that you would live in light of the truth 
that Jesus is coming back and that you will prepare yourself to be face to face with your Lord and maker. So we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But now he moves us beyond just how we should minister or how we can minister to one another. He now points us to how do we minister with for how do we minister to those that are outside? How do we minister to others? It says in Jude and 22, and we have mercy or and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Three categories of those we're called to minister to. The first one being those who doubt. Those who doubt. There's a tendency that when we encounter people who've been shaken up by whether it be truths or or things that they've experienced in other churches, when they start to question and have doubts about God, that our tendency sometimes can be impatient with them. We can try to intellectualize it as if, why don't you just think rightly and you'll be okay? But there's a group of people that have been so wounded and so so, um, affected by false teaching and lives that didn't line up to scriptures, that God is not calling us to simply judge them or to cast our, um, or to further inflict them. God is calling us to show them mercy. There's people in this church right now that have been walking with Jesus for over a decade, but now find themselves in a place to where they're questioning everything they've ever known about God simply because they were, they, they were exposed to a line of teaching that is outside of what God says in his word. And you know what the pains that they've experienced? Empty promises. People who will say, sister, brother, I'm praying for you. Let's get up. And they never show up. Commitments to walk with them, but that lasts for a week. But then where, where have you been for the last three months? Am I no longer acceptable because I begin, because I'm wrestling with believing in my heart what I know in my head? These are those who doubt. He tells us to have mercy. The second category are those who are deceived. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a call to evangelism. All of us have family members and friends who've been around the church. They've been around God. But in many ways, they're following after things that we ultimately know will only lead to their destruction. This right here is the call for us to say, I want y'all to go above and beyond that even if it means going into the fire, your purpose of going into the fire is to snatch them out. It's a call to action. It's a call to say, as Christians, we can't just be content with the 30 or the 200 people that are here that profess to be Christians when there's a world of people that don't know God and are going to hell tomorrow. This is why we have to take being stewards of the good news of Jesus Christ so seriously. It's because what hangs in the stakes is people's eternal eternity. What hangs in the states are souls. Jude is saying, are you the type of people that would be willing to risk your temporary discomfort simply to snatch out of the fire if it could just save one person? 
if it could save one person, would you risk it all? One evangelist, he says it like this. He says, he recalls the story of a teammate. This guy had his teammate in college and sports. And um, the guy, for however long, they were friends and they hung out together. And while they're on this team, there never was a moment where this, this Christian shared with his friend about the fact that he was a Christian. And so this college roommate ends up going to a sport, a Christian function, hearing about the good news of Jesus, and he comes back and he has to confront his friend. He's angry because he's like, how? You're a Christian, right? And he says, yes, I'm a Christian. Then how can you, believing what it means to be a Christian, how can you, knowing that God will judge and send those who don't believe in him, that they're going to hell, how can you know all of those things and believe them, and yet you are not willing to share it with me, who you call a friend? Let's, let's just think about that, y'all. There's people in our lives that have that we will profess that we love them, that we care for them, that we're concerned for them. And we're more preoccupied with meeting their physical needs than even being com- uh, even confronting them about the reality that if you die today and you don't know Jesus as Lord, then where you're going is to spend eternity in hell. That's what we believe. It's unloving for us to not take seriously the opportunities that we have to tell, simply tell somebody else about what Christ has done for us. If we believe it for ourselves, then that has to produce within us a desire to want others to know that very same thing. It has to cause us to view our friends and our family members that don't know Christ through the lens of the buildings burning. The building is burning down and the window of opportunity is closing. Will you stand by and watch? Or will you run in with the purpose of saving others from destruction? So he points us to those that are deceived, that we are to snatch them out of fire. The last one are um, those who, um, he says, after saving others by snatching them out of fire, verse 23, to others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. There are those out there who are hostile to God. They're hostile. And even to these, Jude tells us that we should too show mercy. But he puts a condition. He tells us don't condone what they're doing, but have empathy for where they're going. Empathize with them to the point to where you're willing to engage even though you don't condone their actions. I think this is particularly important for us as Christians simply because when we look at those who are not Christians, we're more so fearful of them than we are loving towards them. We're so scared of getting dirty that we're not even willing to spend time to ask them questions about their lives, to share our table with them, to interact with them, because we fear that if we get too close, then we're going to ultimately end up right where they are. Jesus wasn't like this. Jesus spent time with sinners. He was so closely 
connected to those who didn't know him as Lord, that he got accused of being the very thing of the people he spent time with. This is not a call to withdraw our presence. It's a call to just be careful. You know, one of the things that I learned early on when engaging with people who I knew were probably up to no good, just doing what they thought was right in their own eyes, was to not go into those environments by myself. To not put enough confidence in my own strength and my own abilities that the things that were going on in that environment, that I, wasn't succept- I couldn't be susceptible to them on my own. And so by inviting another brother and sister to go with you, now you have accountability. Now you have a support system. And so now you guys as a team are able to go in praying before you enter into that environment. Now you're able to go in and not rely on what you think is okay, but now the accountability of somebody else looking on that when you slip or when you get off track can say, hey, brother, I, think, I, don't, I don't know if we should be doing that. Notice how that doesn't change the reality that we are to engage and we're to be missional. But that means that we're putting in place safeguards to ultimately protect us and to protect our witness. And so he tells that even those who are hostile, we should show them mercy. And lastly, as we conclude, after going through the fact that God is trustworthy, showing that we can persevere to the end, he ends with the crescendo of sorts, and he says that we can believe that God is able. The Grammys, I think, come on today. They come on today, right? And at any award show, there'll come a moment in time where artists who've been, um, who've been nominated and ultimately who win their particular individual category stand on stage and they give big ups to everybody that played an important role in their life. So you'll hear things like, yeah, I want to make, I want to, I want to thank mama. I want to thank my management. I want to thank my brothers and sisters. I want to thank everybody who's helped me get to where I am today. Well, let's look at Jude in that same light. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. This is our acceptance speech. After everything we've seen that God has done for us, after the reality that God is present with us, even in the lowest points, that when everything is going astray and array in our lives, that God still remains faithful to us. And that in that, the fact that we can trust him, now we're put in a position to where we can obey him because we know that in doing what God wants us to do, it ultimately leads us to greater joy. Now we're brought to, now to the God who's able. The source that keeps us from being able to do what God's called us to do, where we get our strength, isn't in ourselves, but it's into God who is able. He's saying not only is God able to keep you from falling, he's saying that no, this God is able to keep you from stumbling, the very thing that, that, that comes before the fall. This is a God who's close with you. He has to be walking with you because when you can't keep yourself, God is able to keep you. 
God is writing to the Jews because to, to the, these um, these Christians because they haven't been able to keep up with what God has asked them to do. They've gotten off track. And so now he's saying, don't place confidence in yourself. Place confidence in the God who's able to keep you from stumbling. But not only that, he says, the God who's able to keep you from stumbling, but the God who's able to present you blameless before the presence. Blameless before the presence of our Savior. And to do it with great joy. The God who's able to keep you in the here and now is able to present you as blameless in the life to come. Think about that for a moment, that if it weren't for Jesus, if you stood before God on your own, you would instantaneously be crushed. You would instantaneously receive upon yourself the full judgment of God simply because we don't meet his qualifications. But to have a God now say, I'm not only able to keep you from stumbling, but I'm able to present you to the glory of the Lord. That's to say that, man, something had to have happened. That's to say that in Old Testament times, when sacrifices were brought in, the sheep and the lambs that had to go that were only acceptable to God had to be blameless without defect. And so for us as Christians, what that means is that Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb of God. That Jesus lived a life that none of us could live. That Jesus did everything that was acceptable and pleasing to God. And so because of that, because of what he's done for us, he gives opportunity for those that were enemies of his to now become family. Those that were foes at one time to now become friends. So for him to tell us, for him to give us confidence that when we stand before God, he will present us as blameless, but not only blameless, but with great joy. Look at the pleasure of our God. That that's the thing that separates our God from every other God is that he doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't not have a solution to our sin. No, he's provided the solution and it's his son, Jesus Christ. And that from that moment, that moment that he calls us, that he cares for us and that he keeps us, that one day he presents us blameless and he'll do it with great joy. That's not just joy on our part. We're going to be grateful that we're with God. We're going to have joy within us. But no, he's pointing us to his joy. God is not a God who desires or takes pleasure in people perishing. God is not this angry, wrathful God only who, who takes pleasure in seeing people go to hell. No, we serve a God who extends mercy to all and that would weep over the Fidel Castro's that die without knowing Jesus, that would weep over Adolf Hitler's, you name it, the worst of the worst. He weeps for those people because he knows where they will spend their eternity. He takes no pleasure in the, uh, in not one person dying in their sins. And so he tells us that he's able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then in a matter of sorts, he just points us to As Christians, praise is what we do. Praise is what we do. When we fully grasp the measures and the limits of what God has done for us, when we really believe that one day we'll stand before God blameless, holy, acceptable in his sight, then we, I don't have, we don't have to muster up or manipulate or try to motivate people to praise God. It's just a natural byproduct of us experiencing God for who he is. 
So he says, now to him who is able, and he points back to, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. This is who we serve. A God that is the same yesterday as he is today and will ever be. A God that extends mercy and love and care to those that will place their trust in him. And a God who's able to keep us from stumbling, but also to present us one day as glory, in his glory, as blameless, spotless, perfect. As we close, for those of you who, this may be the first time you've ever heard something like this. You've heard the name Jesus, but you never really fully understood or grasped what it means to know him, what it means to be a part of his family. Why would God want somebody like me? My prayer is that you wouldn't leave here today without having a confidence that if you were to stand before God tomorrow, or even after you left this church service, that you could know that your sins had been pardoned, that God loves you and is willing to go to the greatest of lengths for you to know him, and that the only confidence that we have as Christians is that we confess our sins, we acknowledge the ways we've fallen short of God's standard, and we place our trust in the only person who could provide a bridge now between us and God. He's the only way. And so we invite you that this day, if you need one to understand that more, if you want to talk to us, come and check out one of the pastors. We've got a lot of members in this room. And so don't even just look to the pastors to help you understand that. Ask somebody who's a member, what does it mean to be a part of God's family? How do I... How do I enter into a relationship with Jesus in this way? And that's our prayer. So join me on last time as we pray. God, we pray that you would, yeah, God, that you would do what only you can do. Father, that behind the scenes you're at work even now. And so I pray that your spirit would give courage to those that desire to place their trust in you, but are wrestling with concerns for what people may think of them or what they have what they're going to lose by doing that or whatever it may be father i pray that you would give a sense of peace right now that would lead them to repent of their sins and to give their lives to you to enter into a relationship of your family for we know that god being a part of your family gives means that we have access to you that we can love you that we can know you fully and that we can work to serve you and to serve others. So we pray that your word would fall on fertile ground, bear fruit in the lives of your people, 30, 60, and 100 fold. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.